Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. And as I was seated in the front row, I couldn't help but think many of you probably are familiar with Jeff, Jeff Foxworthy. He used to do a little series of comedic things where he would say, you might be a redneck if... You're thinking, what on earth has that got to do with anything? Nothing except this. I was sitting there during worship thinking, you might be married to an Irish woman if she shows up on St. Patty's Day wearing a green plaid scarf. Well, good morning, Lassie. (laughs) Well, this morning we've got an interesting time ahead of us. I'll alert you in advance that I asked first service to pray for second service because I was just getting warmed up at the end of the service and I had a cup of coffee in between. So you're going to get it this morning. So let me just remind you Wednesday nighters that last week we opened up a familiar chapter, one known to believer and non-believer alike. We made the point that many uh, Bible stories are known by people around the world. We hear of Jonah and The whale, most people know about Noah and the ark, even though the people at NBC had some major problems with it when they presented the story. They had Noah and Moses talking to each other, and that's a problem. Um, But the fact is, what we covered last Wednesday, we kind of borrowed from Ephesians 6.10, a verse that introduces some issues regarding spiritual warfare. And our title was, Be Strong in the Lord. And what we did on Wednesday is we looked at the backstory of David and Goliath, the things that happened leading up to the encounter between the young shepherd boy and the nine-foot-six giant, and how he was slain. And this Wednesday, we'll look at the other half of Ephesians 6.10 as we look at the actual encounter between David and Goliath, and our message will be titled, In the Power of His Might. So we can be strong in the Lord and in the power of His Might. Amen? So, with that said... Are you ready to rumble this morning? Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, we've got a very brief set of verses, but a very important and timely message, looking at verses 35 through 40. Now, in our last time together, we recognized a triad of Ps that we could well use to describe and maybe even define the Christian life and experience down through the ages. And our Ps were power, persecution, and praise. And we made note that divine power was manifested through the Apostle Paul when he had mercy on a young slave girl who had the spirit of divination. She was possessed by a demon, and he manifested divine power when he turned and spoke to the demon and set the woman free, the slave girl free. Well, for this good deed, we found that they were persecuted, Paul and Silas, that is, And they were beaten with rods until the Roman magistrate said that it was time to stop. And after that, they were put in prison. Their feet were put in stocks. And remember, we found that the stocks used in that day had a series of holes in it. And they would spread the person's feet as far apart as possible to create maximum pain and discomfort. And they were put in prison. They were persecuted for the manifested power of God as they set this girl free. Now, in response to this illegal arrest, illegal treatment, and unjust imprisonment, they were bloodied and bruised, yet at midnight, they found themselves singing hymns of praise to God. And then something rather radical happened. Now, we gleaned three truths from our introductory section last time to what we'll cover here this morning, and they were simply this by way of reminder. Holy Spirit-filled Christians are the most powerful people on earth. There's a lot of people who think they're powerful. There's a lot of people who may have political power. There's a lot of people who may have financial power. But they are no measure against somebody who's filled with God's power. And Romans 8.11 assures us that, that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells where? In you. Now, we also found a rather interesting but obvious point last time we were together in Acts 16 that only those living righteous can be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, that's an obvious truth, but the fact is we need to remember that today because a lot of times people say, well, you know, I'm being persecuted for righteousness' sake, when in fact they're just being persecuted for being a jerk. And there's a big difference, amen? 
And therefore, we found in 1 Peter 3.14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are what? Blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. That's still true today. Amen? We don't need to be troubled or afraid of the threats coming against us today. Now, we also found that praise when persecuted is an anthem to God's goodness and glory. And Peter would put it like this in 1 Peter 4.14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he's what? That's what we're here on the planet to do. That's why God has left us on this giant dirt cloud hung in space. We are here to glorify God. And since the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in us, we, like Jesus, are going to suffer for righteousness' sake. And when we do, we are blessed in those times because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. And God, therefore, is given glory through our praise during times of persecution. Now, we'll back it up a little bit so we can get back up to speed in our text Remembering from Acts 16, 29 to 30, that at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, we needed to recount this, not just for introducing our verses this morning, but we need to recognize something here. It wasn't the earthquake. It wasn't the doors of the prison opening. It wasn't the chains falling off all the prisoners' hands that led the jailer to inquire of how he might be saved. The fact is, when the earthquake happened, when the doors flew open and the chains came off the prisoners, he was going to kill himself. But what kept him alive and what caused him to inquire of how he could be saved was the mercy of offered by Paul and Silas in sparing his life and saying, nobody's here. You don't have to kill yourself according to Roman law. Now, this is important for you and I because we need to remember that the world is not going to find hope through experientialism or sensationalism in the church. We don't need the building to shake. We need the word of God to shake people up and transform their lives. Now, the fact is, the world has enough sensational things. We have every sense touched every day on every level. What the world needs is something concrete, something immovable, something transformational, something that changes them and their eternal destiny. And that kind of faith comes only by hearing the word of God. Now, as you can see, I'm going to get a little testy this morning. I'm a little bit excited about this. Because I've been thinking about this message for three weeks. So it's been in there brewing. So not only are you going to get it this morning, you're going to get it with an extra cup of coffee. So now our verses are going to open the door for us to examine a timely reality. Now, those who had illegally beaten Paul and Silas because of the economic impact of freeing this girl from demonic possession... They try and free them secretly and, in essence, get away with their violation of Roman law. Now, this has a parallel in our day, and it's nothing new. It's gone on since the time of Acts chapter 16. And in light of the criminal charges and lawsuits today being leveled at Christians who operate their lives and businesses according to the Word of God, I thought it a fitting reminder that we review the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, which reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press 
or of the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Listen, the First Amendment binds the Congress, not the people. The First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution says Congress is to keep their nose out of the church. They can't tell people where to go to church, and they cannot limit what the church does and how they operate. And listen, I say this for this reason. State legislatures and congressional leaders are violating the First Amendment on a regular basis in our country today. And the fact is, the actions of Paul and Silas are going to teach us what to do in such a time as this and how we are to handle things of that matter matter in this time. Now, I say that because I believe that at any moment that the trumpet that is already pursed to the lips of an angel is about to blow, and let me paraphrase 1 Corinthians 15, we out of here. In a moment and a twinkling of an eye. And because I believe we are on the threshold of the rapture of the church, I believe the church right now, today, this very church included, is making, and here's our title, The Last Stand. We are taking or making the last stand today before the rapture of the church. Now, let me just say this. Some of you might hear some things you don't like this morning. Stay seated. You have to hear the whole message. I've told young pastors over the years, and I say this as a personal testimony, if people don't walk out of your sermon once in a while, you ain't preaching the truth. (laughs) Because people don't like to hear it. A lot of people like darkness better than light. So, stay seated this morning. You don't want anybody to think you love darkness. Now, also, let me just say this. And we lock the doors anyway. You ain't going nowhere. So, listen. You have to listen to the whole message. You have to listen to everything that's going to be said this morning because our points are linked together and they will take us to an intended end this morning. So, what we're going to see is how Paul and Silas take a stand in the face of illegal actions against them and learn what we should do when the same thing happens to us or we're threatened with it. Because I believe this is the last stand before the rapture of the church. So with that said, let's all stand and read our verses together this morning from Acts chapter 16, verses 35 through 40. Acts 16, 35. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. And Lord, we are mindful of your closing salutation and exhortation to each of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, that he who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit is saying. And Lord, I pray for some this morning that you would erase the indoctrination that they have experienced at the hands of educators today and that they would indeed hear the truth. And Lord, would you create in us a boldness to walk by faith in power as we take the last stand before you come get the church. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as always, we're going to have a few things to consider. Three in number is our usual number. And the fact is, we need to first consider there is growing persecution in these United States of America. Now, there are a lot of people who are unaware of this simply because they do not follow such things. And the mainstream media, or as Amir Sarfati calls them, the medianites, do not like to cover some of these stories. But let me give you some facts. And by the way, Every single one of the things I'm about to tell you has happened in the last seven years. Now, 
The first is this. There's a small town Indiana pizzeria that is owned by a Christian family that has had to close its doors because it was being terrorized by pro-homosexual bullies who are opposed to the family's religious values. A Mennonite couple named Richard and Betty Odgard were forced to close their business in Des Moines, Iowa after being targeted by gay activists for their refusal to host a gay wedding in their wedding chapel. Baronel Stutzman, the owner of Arlene's Flowers and Gifts in Richland, Washington, was ordered to pay a $1,000 fine after declining to provide floral arrangements for a same-sex wedding. An Indianapolis bakery owned by Randy and Trish McGath found itself the target of an online campaign launched by gay activists after they cited their Christian beliefs as the reason they would not provide a cake for a same-sex wedding. The New York State Division of Human Rights has ruled that the Roman Catholic owners of an Albany-area farm violated the civil rights of a lesbian couple when they declined to host the couple's same-sex marriage ceremony. A lesbian couple sued, sued the Wildflower Inn in Vermont under the state public accommodations law after being told they could not have their wedding reception there. The state of Oregon attacked a family bakery owned by Aaron and Melissa Klein when they declined to provide a wedding cake for a lesbian wedding, again, citing their Christian beliefs. University of Toledo fired a staff member when she disagreed that the idea of gay marriage is a civil rights issue. Elaine and Jonathan Huganian were forced by a court in New Mexico to pay more than $6,000 in fines after they declined to use their business, Elaine Photography, to photograph a lesbian commitment ceremony. Now, listen this morning. Believing in marriage, according to the Bible's definition of marriage, is a religious belief and prosecuting anyone who stands for what the Bible says is a violation of the First Amendment regarding gender and regarding marriage and sexuality. Think about our text. Believing that the exploitation of a poor, possessed slave girl for personal profit by her masters was also against the will of God is the very thing that led to Paul and Silas getting arrested, being beaten, and imprisoned for their beliefs. Now, Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2.20, for what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, and patiently is one of our favorite Greek words, it's hupomone, it means uh, patient or, or cheerful endurance, rather, this is commendable for, uh, before God. When you do good and suffer, if you take it with cheerful endurance, this is commendable before God. And we see the fruit of the actions of Paul and Silas as the jailer and his whole household were saved and then baptized. Thus, the suffering of Paul and Silas was commendable before God. Now, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But first note what Paul says here. When the magistrates try and slip them out of the prison, telling them, or the jailer at least, adding to them, go in peace. How's that for a send-off? You're going to get beaten with who knows how many stripes of a rod on your back. Then the jailer's going to spread your legs out as far as he possibly can and lock them in stocks. And then the next morning he's going to say, hey, go in peace. Thanks for stopping by, in essence. Well, Paul says, you beat us openly and illegally. You put us in prison of the violation of Roman law, and now you want to release us secretly? I don't think so. Paul was having none of it. Now listen, according to what's called the Lex Julian, which was the law established under the Roman Caesar, Julius Caesar, a Roman citizen could not be beaten or bound by any government official or any individual person, including a magistrate. If a person declared civis Romanus sum, meaning I am a Roman citizen, they could not be beaten, nor could they be imprisoned. They were immune from punishment, and heavy consequences were prescribed for those who violated the privileges of any Roman citizen. Now, this wasn't the last time Paul was going to have this encounter. In Acts 22, 22 to 29, we're told they listened to him until this word. Paul said he had a vision 
a, a mandate to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. They listened until that, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he's not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air, signs of grieving, the commander, the Roman commander, ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging. In other words, they were going to beat it out of him and said uh, so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And as they bound him with thongs, uh, strips of leather, Paul said to the centurion who stood by him, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do. This man's a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He, Paul, said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had what? He bound him. Now, why didn't this happen in this scene? Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. Paul, in Acts 25, would again appeal to Caesar. Just as a commander who had bound him was in fear, as the jailer was in fear because he violated the Lex Julius as well. And therefore, Paul was taking advantage of his rights as a Roman citizen. Now, here's what we can glean from this scene. As American Christians growing increasing persecution in these last days. Now, remember, there's more to follow this point, but here it comes. You ready? Listen, very simple. We have every right to exercise our rights. As American Christians, we have every right to exercise our rights. Now, one of the sad realities of our day is that there are two groups who are exercising their rights to the full extent, and they, in a sense, are exercising them illegally against the church, and that is the Muslims and the LGBT movement. Now, they are standing up for their rights to assemble. They're standing up for their rights to make their voices heard. They're standing up for their rights for free speech. And in response, the government is taking the free speech from the church. They're denying their abilities to believe what the word of God says. Now, the time to make the last stand is now. And the fact is, as Paul and Silas' rights were violated, so too are our First Amendment rights being violated. And we have every right to exercise our rights within the court system, as Paul does here in Acts. Now, there are very clear directives on Christian-to-Christian differences, and we need to heed them. Listen, the Bible says, and I'm just going to break it down real simple so I can understand it. Are you ready? Christians don't drag other Christians to court. Hello? Christians don't drag other Christians to court to settle a matter. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 5 says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life... Do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before what? Unbelievers. Listen, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man cannot discern the things of God because they are spiritual. And listen, we don't need some heathen deciding matters between believers. Hello? And yes, the Bible says that non-believers are heathens. They are not people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, that's a badge of honor in our day. These heathenists that have this burning man thing and all these other things are proud of their heathen identity. But the fact is, let me just go one step further. I say also that it is to the church's shame today that many are disputing their interpretive matters concerning 
eschatology and other things on social media. And they are calling each other names, pointing fingers at one another on Facebook and Instagram and whatever the other medias are, much to the shame of the church. And they're doing it in front of non-believers, telling non-believers the church is just a bunch of bickering ninnies who can't resolve any of their own issues. Well, that's not who the church is. The gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. Amen? And listen this morning. The truth is, what we can glean from Paul's actions is when we are dealing with the unrighteous, we have every right to use the system that our government has instituted to defend ourselves. Paul says to the keeper of the prison, they beat me, they bound me illegally, they imprisoned me, let them come and admit their wrong publicly and let us out of prison personally. When the officers told this to the magistrates, they were in fear, as the Roman commander would later be in Acts 22. So before I get wound up, let's move on. Read with me verses, or verse rather, 39 once again. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. Now, how's that? They beat him with rods. And remember, there was no such law under Roman law like the Jews had. 39 lashes minus one. 40 lashes minus one for mercy. They were beaten until the magistrate said, that's enough. The guy's going to die. So they were beaten. They were then in prison. Their feet were put in stocks. And then the magistrates come and say, would you guys just mind leaving? Paul, I love what he does here. And there's something that's another side of a coin that we will attach to our first point here in a moment. Having exposed the magistrates' violation of Roman law, Paul instructs the officers to tell the magistrates, you know what, you're going to have to come let us out. And you opening the door says that you're the guilty ones and not us. And at this word, the magistrates not only came, they pleaded with them. That phrase also can be translated as they sought consolation. It even means they apologized and brought them out and asked them, implied nicely, if they would just simply leave. Now, we looked at what Paul did when he exercised his rights, and now we need to consider what he didn't do. Now, as we noted from the Lex Julian, there were severe consequences for beating and binding a Roman citizen, even if you're a magistrate or a jailer. Now, not only did Paul and the prisoners stay put when the quake opened all the doors and their chains fell off, but they also did not press the issue of illegality of his beating and binding in which the jailer was complicit, but rather he dealt with the more important matter of the jailer's salvation. Now, this reminds us of a couple of things. There one that said by Jesus, another reported by Paul. First, Jesus in Luke 6, 27 to 28 says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who... What a wonderful relationship that must be, huh? Hating, cursing, spitefully using you, yet the Lord says to respond with a Christ-like love that he has extended to us. And then in Romans 12, 17 to 21, Paul writes this, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, meaning it's not always, but if it is possible, as much as depends on you, in other words, do everything you can to be at peace with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says who? Says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head, which is what we wanted to do in the first place. (laughs) Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I will say, this is going to take something more than self-control to do this. This is going to require the spirit of the living God, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Now, here's one of the reasons I said you have to listen to the whole message. Are you ready for this one? Listen, there are times it is right not to exercise our rights. There are times it is right to not exercise our rights. Now, this isn't a contradiction of our first point. This is an amendment to it. Now, let me give you an example of this type of thinking in Scripture. In two back-to-back verses in the Proverbs, chapter 26. Verse 4 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, 
lest you also be like him. So we're not to answer a fool in their folly. Is that what it says? You know what the next verse says? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what that means is this. There's times to answer a fool, and there's times not to answer a fool. And in the eyes of the Roman law, Paul and Silas had every right to put the jailer and the magistrate's feet in the very stocks that their feet were placed in overnight. But, you knew that was coming, didn't you? But, there was a law that was higher than that of Roman law. And yes, we have every right to exercise our rights under the laws of our land, but there are times when there is a greater good that can be accomplished by not doing so. Now listen, as we said in our intro, it wasn't the quake, it wasn't the doors opening, it wasn't the loose change that led the jailer to inquire of how he could be saved. It was mercy that asked him how he could have what Paul and Silas had. What must I do to be saved? Now listen, there are more important things to the church and every Christian than getting back at or getting even according to the laws of the land. There are more important things to the church and every Christian than getting back at or getting even, even according to the laws of the land. There are times to not exercise our rights, even though we have every right to exercise them. Now, Jesus would go on and say in Luke, in 629 to 36, to him who strikes you on one cheek, hit him with a left hook as fast as you can. That's from First Barry. <laughs> to the one who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, here's the golden rule, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Here's Jesus speaking, remember. For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But here we go again. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to who? The unthankful and the evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. Now listen, there are times when the right thing to do is to exercise our, sometimes it's exorcise too. Sometimes the right thing to do is to exercise our rights as an American citizen and a Christian. And there are times when it's the right thing to not exercise our rights as Americans. But remember, and this is part of what's going on in our own Congress and Senate and politics today, When Jesus is saying the treatment of these individuals is to respond with hate or to hate with love, he's not establishing national policy. He's talking about interpersonal relationships. According to the word of God, according to Romans chapter 13, the government, the judicial system, has the God-given responsibility to punish evildoers and protect the innocent of its citizenry. That is what God says. And if you disagree with that, you disagree with God. The government has a responsibility. It is an institution ordained by God to protect its people, not to rule over them with tyranny. So, sometimes we need to exercise our rights. Sometimes we need to not exercise our rights. So when is the right time to do what? I was hoping you were going to ask that. Because here's the answer. In Luke chapter 12, 11 and 12, Jesus told the disciples, Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates through the religious court or the civil court and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you when? In that very hour, what you ought to say. Now, I want to remind you, Peter was in the same circumstance. He had been arrested. This is one of my favorite things. I I love Peter, probably because like you, 
I really identify with Peter a lot because Peter tended to say things he hadn't thought of yet. And he would speak when he ought to be quiet. We've all been there, done that, and you can say amen so I don't feel like I'm all alone up here. But one of the things I love about the story of Peter being arrested is that when an angel showed up to walk him out the doors that opened of their own accord, Peter was out like a light. The angel had to poke him in the side. He's going to die the next day. And the angel had to poke him in the side. Hey, Pete, get up, man. We out. <laughs> and Peter didn't know if he was dreaming or not. He walks by the first guard, the second guard, and then the, the prison gates swing open of their own accord, and then he's walking down the street of the city. The angel disappears, and Peter realizes, hey, this really happened. Well, Paul was in prison. Silas was in prison. They were being persecuted for the same thing Peter was, and that was preaching the gospel and seeing the manifestations of divine power. Prison shut. Gates flew open. Chains fell off. Nobody moved. Now, how did Peter know to get up and go and Paul and Silas to stay put? Exactly what Jesus said. In the very hour they needed to know what to do, the Lord supplied it. And this is why Jesus told his disciples in John 14, 26, when he was dealing with the fact that he was going to be crucified and they were struggling with the issue. And he finally told them, you know, hey, stop letting your heart be troubled. Believe in me the same way you believe in God. My father's house, there are many mansions and I'm going there and I'm going there to prepare a place for you so I can come again, receive you unto myself that where I am, you may be also. And he said, if I don't leave, the Holy Spirit can't come. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to teach you everything. He will teach you all things, including what to do in hours that we will face in life when we're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, listen, that's why Peter exited the prison and Paul stayed. Now, the law may say we have this right or that, but our litmus test for exercising or not exercising a right is simply the leading of the Spirit and the furtherance of the gospel. Now, this gives us all the more reason to stay in top spiritual condition today because the fact is, if there is anything that dulls the hearing and the ability to discern the still small voice, it is the weights and sins that so easily beset us. We need to be spiritually fit as we make the last stand. Is anybody here this morning? Now, let's finish off with verse 40 for the second hour of our message. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and what? They departed. Now, they were asked to leave and they headed to Lydia's house. Now, after the pleading of the magistrates for the duo to leave the city, Paul and Silas head to Lydia's house. Isn't this interesting? Beaten with rods, feet in stocks, overnight in jail, and they go back to encourage the people that were praying for them. You would think it would be the other way around, but I think we all understand that it is often the person who is doing the suffering who ministers to those who have been praying for them. And the fact is, listen, it seems like Luke possibly stayed behind, kind of a side note, because the personal pronouns switch back from we to they, like we introduced last time. So most likely Luke stayed behind to help with this brand new church that was planted, the first church in Europe. Now, this was a rather interesting church in comparison to the largely Jewish churches of the early days of church history. The original congregants in the first church of Europe were Lydia, a lady who sold purple, purple dye, the color of royalty. She was a wealthy merchant woman. The second person we know of that was a member of the church in Europe was the ex-Pythonus, the one who worked, uh, worked for the serpent demon, a demon-possessed slave girl set free by the power of God manifested through Paul. The third member of the congregation was a Philippian jailer and his family. And I would hazard a guess, and maybe even we could say a probability, that there were some ex-inmates who were also making up this church. So the first church of Europe was comprised of the rich and the poor, the slave and the free, 
and male and female. All who have been made one in Christ. Just as Galatians says in 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in who? In Christ Jesus. Listen, each of these persons also had their own differences besides gender and ethnicity. Lydia seemed to be searching for an intellectual need to be satisfied. Verse 14 says she heard. That means she listened to the words of Paul with the intent of learning. Now, the demon-possessed girl obviously had a spiritual need, and the jailer had a moral need because he was given to cruelty towards those who were under his charge, as evidenced by putting Paul and Silas in the stocks. But we also need to remember in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 14, for as the, one, as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. In other words, the church is made up of all kinds of people. The church is made up of people of different financial statuses, ethnic backgrounds, and one of two genders, two genders, male or female, he created them. I don't know what the number is today. It went from 50-something to 63. I heard now there's 68 genders. You're going to have a hard time proving that one through DNA. Now, the fact is, no matter what our need is that begins our search for truth, Jesus is going to be the answer. If your search is intellectual, Jesus is going to be the answer. If your search is spiritual, Jesus is going to be the answer. If your search is moral, Jesus is going to be the answer. Now, here's our point this morning to wrap things up. Paul and Silas stopped by on their way out of town to encourage this very eclectic body of new believers. Now, obviously, they agreed to the terms of the magistrates, and that is that they were to leave after they pled and apologized to them. Now, here's the point. Before they left town, they did what they needed to do before they did what they were asked to do. Now, this leads to the last of our issues concerning taking the last stand, and it's just this. Here we go. Listen. We have a higher calling that cannot be restricted by any human law or ordinance. We have a higher calling that cannot be restricted by any human law or ordinance. Yes, they could tell them, you need to leave town. But they said rightfully, we're going to encourage the church before we go and leave Luke behind to help them make their way through the apostles' doctrines and come to an understanding of what the church holds to and believes. Now, listen. Sometimes we advance the gospel by exercising our rights under the law. Sometimes we advance the gospel by not exercising our rights under the law. And two things that override all human laws and ordinances are the Great Commission and defending the inspiration and infallibility of the Word of God. Now, in Acts 5, 27 to 29, we're told when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name. And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, you're right, we apologize, we won't say anything ever again. No, what did they do? We ought to obey God rather than men. Listen, when the laws of the land seek to forbid or hinder the exclusivity of the Christian claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We obey the word of God and not the government. Now in 1 John 2, 3 to 5, listen close now. John the Beloved says, Now by this we know that we know him. If we, what? Keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a... Liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, same meaning for commandments, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. How do we know we're in him? By keeping his word. 
And the word keep is the Greek word toreo. It means to guard from loss or injury. Now, the fact is, that means we don't bow to governmental demands to deny or redefine the precepts, moral principles, or terms of Scripture. If the Bible says there's two genders, that's where we stand. If the Bible says marriage is between a man and a woman, that's where we stand. If the Bible says every word of God is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's where we stand. We do not allow the word of God to be disparaged. We do not allow the word of God to be diminished. We do not allow the word of God to be categorized with other religious writings. When the law of the land says you can't preach Christ, we preach him anyway. And we use wisdom when we do. When the law of the land says you can't adhere to the Bible's definitions of right, wrong, marriage, or sexuality, or gender, you take your stand. Listen, you take your stand. Are you here this morning? You take your stand on the Word of God, even if it's the last stand you ever take. Thank you for the recognition over here. I don't know what happened over here, but it's the same for you guys, too. Now, listen to this. Yes, there we go. There we go. I knew you were in. Now, Jesus is coming soon. And he posed this question about when he was coming. He said in Luke 18, 7 and 8, And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? Though he bears long with them, God is long-suffering. You know what long-suffering means? Withholding of wrath. There's a lot of people that think they're getting away with things, but they're not. God is just merciful. He's going to deal with them. He is long-suffering because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to church. (laughs) But that all would come to what? Repentance. That's why God doesn't deal immediately and instantaneously and permanently with people who are outside of his will and word, even though we wish he would, except for us. Now, I tell you, Jesus speaking, I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Now, what that means is it's going to happen suddenly and quickly and out of nowhere, just like his return. But nevertheless, listen to the question Jesus posed. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he find people who are guarding his word? from loss or injury? Will he find people who are more concerned about people being added to his kingdom than exercising their own rights? Will he find people who are operating to the fullest advantage of the laws afforded to them, like Paul did, for the sake of presenting the gospel and edifying the church? Well, I have something to tell you this morning. When the Lord posed the question, will he really find faith on the earth? I checked the yes box for CCT. We're going to hold fast to his word. We're not going to deny his name. We're going to keep the faith even if we're the last one standing. And the fact is, there's only one thing left to say, and that's, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now listen. I find it interesting that amongst those that Jesus called, he called all types of people and gave them that same directive. Follow me. Two pairs of fishermen brothers, family businesses, well-to-do people, the sons of Zebedee, and then Peter and Andrew also had their own fishing business. They were making it. They were doing well. Called another guy who was not very popular amongst the citizenry of Israel, even though they were under uh, the Roman domination. He called a guy named Matthew who worked for the IRS of the day. Tax collector. Every April 15th, everybody hated him when it rolled around (laughs) in his day. And he called some others who we don't know and hear a lot about. But he also called this guy named Simon. Not Simon Peter, but he's called Simon the Zealot. He was a radical. He was one who practiced extremism. He was probably a lot like Peter as far as personality definite type A. 
but he didn't let that carry himself too far. But listen, there was room for him among the 12, just like there was a tax collector, just like there was a successful businessman. And listen, there's room for you and me, and there's room for our personality, and there's room for who we are, and there's room for how we act in the sense of acting as a Christian. But the fact is, listen, we can have a strong personality, we can be passive, we can be, uh, I don't know if I want to say passive-aggressive, but yeah, there's some passive-aggressives in the body too, right? But the fact is, listen, we're all one in Christ. And that's our identity. That's our mission, is being one in him. And everything else in this life is secondary. In this life, you will have tribulation. Jesus said, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So we need to live according to that promise and pursue life under that banner and heading. Recognizing that, yeah, we got rights. And listen, we ought to take full advantage of those rights. And listen, when somebody says, hey, you can't say Jesus is the way the truth, and the life, you just say, Congress shall pass no law. You point them to the First Amendment. We have every right to preach Christ and Him crucified. I have every right to believe that the Bible's definition of marriage is the only acceptable definition of marriage. I have every right to believe that sexuality and sexual practices is only to be between a married man and woman. I have every right to believe that under the Constitution of these United States. And if you want to mess with me, I'll point you to the Constitution. Well, listen, even higher than that, I'm going to obey God rather than the mandates of men. And this is what the church needs to understand today. We are here to preach the gospel to every creature. And if they say, that's fine, but change the gospel, we say, nothing doing. The message goes out in full power, intact, because when people receive the implanted word, it's able to save their souls. Listen, a watered-down message isn't going to save anybody. A marginalized message isn't going to save anybody. That's why Jesus underscored time and time again, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And those who don't guard the truth from loss or injury are liars. And the truth is not in them. Thus says the word of God. Amen.